We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, we've got an entire chapter to look through today. Chapter 14, it's a chapter that is on um, what we would call Christian liberty or Christian freedom. Right, the, the freedom that, that we have in Christ to partake in um, certain uh, in enjoyments, if you will, or certain practices, certain lifestyles uh, that, that, um, that some other people may feel you shouldn't partake in. Right? I was joking and said that we're going to do a vote today. We're going to list a number of items and say, which one do you, should you drink wine, yes or no? We're just going to do a vote. That would be very unifying for us as a church to do in this moment. We won't do that. We're not going to call you out specifically, but I believe there's some beautiful things here within this text for us as a church to look at. Some beautiful things within this text about what it looks like for us to love one another. If you were to invite Tish and I over to your house for dinner, which some of you have, you'll find that we're actually a pretty complicated couple to invite over for dinner. Not because we're like cantankerous or angry or, um, or those things, but because our dietary restrictions are decently strict. Neither one of us eat sugar. Neither one of us eat flour of any kind. Um, my wife is allergic to gluten, and uh, like not like the pretend, like it's really hip in culture to be allergic to gluten type, but like the real allergic to gluten, like sick for weeks type of allergic to gluten. And so if we come, we go, hey, here's the, we don't eat sugar, we don't eat flour, we don't, can't eat gluten, it'll almost kill us, or her at least, and so uh, can you work with that, right? And, and you'll find as you begin to try to work with that, that sugar and, and flour hide in everything, right? It's a complicated dinner party. Not quite as complicated as what was happening in Rome. Because in Rome, the dinner party wasn't just, hey, you know what, I don't eat sugar and flour for health reasons. It was, hey, like, I don't eat meat because I believe that it's unfaithful to God to eat meat. I'm a vegetarian because to be anything but a vegetarian is to be unfaithful to God. So what are you going to do with that? I don't drink wine because to drink wine is to be unfaithful to God. I keep practicing the religious holidays. I, I believe that some days are more holy than others and some days are less holy than others because, well, it's unfaithful to not believe this way. This was the situation facing the church. A number of the Jewish Christians in this, in this church in Rome were vegetarian, and not because they had watched forks over knives, and not because they were convinced from science that vegetarian diet was uh, heart healthy. Um, they truly thought it made them faithful to God. They would not eat meat, definitely not meat offered to idols. But there are other Christians in Rome, namely Gentile Christians and, and some Jewish Christians who have learned to walk in freedom in these things because of Jesus Christ. There are some uh, believers within Rome who didn't believe these restrictions were needed to be faithful. And if you remember, as we've gathered together and gone through this book, through the book of Rome, throughout, uh, through the book of Romans throughout the last uh, t 10 months, uh, what we've seen is that Paul is writing this to unify this church around the gospel because there's a growing amount of division within the church. And some of that division was around Christian liberty, Christian freedom. Some had a strong conscience that believed you could not partake in these things, while others had a free conscience that believed you could, and it was causing division within the church. So Paul writes to address it. Some of this church believe that you should continue practicing the Jewish holidays. Some believe you should refrain from meat. While others believe that you could eat meat and they love Chick-fil-A. And some believe that you should not drink wine. And others believe that you drink it as an act of worship and celebration. And these were the divisions that they were facing. 
So Paul spends the first 11 chapters, if you will, of the book of Romans to give us this idea. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Right? The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. There's going to be lots of different opinions. The main thing we have to focus on is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And in the first 11 chapters, he unpacks for us the main thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes, this is primary. You're a sinner. You're unable to save yourself. But Jesus, the Son of God, has come, lived perfectly, died in, on your behalf, has risen again. And if you place faith in him, you will be saved. That's the main thing. Let's focus on that, and then let's work on our unity in the midst of all the other differences. So Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking this main thing, and then the next three chapters, 12 through 15, he's unpacking the implications of the main thing. That we should be living sacrifices of genuine love for each other, which is our spiritual worship. 12 through 15, be, be living sacrifices of genuine love towards one another, which is your spiritual form of worship. And one of the reasons that Paul has done all of this is to unify this church around this main thing so that then they might send him on, we'll see um, in chapters 15 and 16, that they might send him on to Spain with the gospel. So Paul has mission in mind. This church is divided. Paul needs this church to be united so that they can support him in mission. Right? United around the gospel for the sake of that church's health, united around the gospel for the sake of the gospel in the city of Rome, and united around the gospel so that they are healthy to send him on with the gospel to Spain. In Moo's commentary on this passage, he says, divisions in the church over non-essentials diverts precious time and energy from its basic mission, the proclamation of the gospel and the glorifying of God. At Emmaus, we say that our mission, our reason to exist is to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. To see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And church divisions within our church over non-essentials will divert precious time and energy on the most basic mission, declaring and displaying the gospel for the glory of God. So we have to learn how to walk in unity when we have differences of opinion around non-essential issues. What Paul unpacks for us in chapters 14 and 15 will help us remember, or excuse me, will help us remain in gospel unity for the goal of gospel mission, for the glory of and honor of the God of the gospel. So let's look at verse 1. And I'll be honest with you today, we're, a lot of times we just start at verse 1 and we just go verse by verse. Today is going to be more jumbled up. We're going to look at points as we go throughout this. It's a little bit long and circular to just kind of go walk straight through it. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So Paul begins chapter 14 with this, hey, there's some who are weak in faith, which implies there's also some who are strong in faith. And the question then is, what does he mean by weak and what does he mean by strong? In Paul's chapter here, the weak and the strong are identified as this. The weak person is one for whom, um, one who for reason of conscience cannot take part in some liberty that Jesus has purchased for us. The weak person is one who for reason of conscience cannot take part in some liberty that Christ has purchased for us. Whereas the strong person 
is one who is able to embrace the liberty which God has given to us to enjoy certain delights and practices in life. Look at verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Right? The strong, I can eat anything I want. Meat, sugar, flour, can eat anything. The weak person, I only get vegetables. That's my father-in-law. I, like, I would love to use this first on him when I go to his house at Christmas time. Christmas dinner is just a plate of vegetables. Come on, Dad. Right? Quit being weak. But here it's referring for spiritual reasons, right? Like if you withhold from this, uh, for, for reason of conscience, I can't partake in this. It says the weak one, or the one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5 one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Right? One person esteems one day as better than the other. That's the weak, while another esteems all days alike, the, the strong. Like, one has a stricter regulation in their life. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Right here, he's, talking, he's talked about meat. He's talked about how, uh, religious days. Here, he's talking about, um, about wine, right? That there's a place for wine and there's a place not to drink wine. Strong can indulge and the weak do not. Now, most of us typically identify ourselves as the strong. Few of us will sit and listen to the sermon and be like, I'm the weak guy. Yep, chalk me up as the weak one. Let me explain. Those of us who um, hear this will love to find ways in our life where we identify as a strong one and go, look at my Christian freedom. Look how free I am in that area. Look how strong I am in that area. I'm doing really well in that area. I'm glad I'm not weak in that area. But even those of us who meet the qualifications of weakness here often meet those qualifications believing that we are the strong one. Right? I don't partake in wine when all of these other people do. Look how strong my discipline is. Like, I must be stronger in my faith because I can say no to that my whole life. We love to identify ourselves as the strong. But the reality is that we are all the stronger brother at times around some issues, and we are all the weaker brother or sister at times around some issues. So as we look at this text, we have to ask ourselves, in what ways am I the stronger, and in what ways am I the weaker? And then we have to ask the text, what should my heart and actions be like when I am the weaker? And what should my heart and my actions be like when I am the stronger? There's application for both strong and weak in all of our lives here. Now, few of us struggle with eating meat as a matter of spiritual conviction, probably. Right? Perhaps some of you are vegetarian, vegan. When my daughter moved in with us, my wife and I were on a one-year vegan issue. Right? I call it an issue because I think it was a sickness, one year of veganism. And our daughter moved in with us at 14. We're like, sorry, we're vegan. We don't eat meat. She's like, oh, that's great. I'm a vegetarian. We're like, oh, you don't eat meat either? She's like, well, I eat bacon and Taco Bell. Right? I'm like, I, I don't think that's vegetarian. You know, like... Maybe Taco Bell, that might not be me, but, um, <laughs> but we're not sure. Right? We, 
What, what are our issues, right? What are issues that we face in our culture that might be issues that fall in line here? Well, it's becoming less so, um, but I'm 40, and throughout my life, alcohol and tobacco have been major issues around this. Alcohol and tobacco have been major issues around this. I was raised in a Christian culture where it was absolutely wrong for a Christian to drink alcohol of any kinds to any amount, and absolutely wrong to take in any form of tobacco at any time. The generation before me even expanded that to like, no cards, no dancing, and as a kid, I got the ramifications of that passed down. Even still today, within especially the Baptist context, these are, these are hot-button topics. Many Baptist institutions and churches have no alcohol policies. What about education? How you choose to educate your children is often considered a ma- ma- uh, an issue of faithfulness. We have homeschoolers, Christian schoolers, public schoolers, and I've met people from all three groups who believe their version of education is the only right version of education to be faithful. What about vaccinations? Do we vaccinate our children? Do we not vaccinate our children? I've met people who believe that it's irresponsible and unfaithful not to, and I've met people who believe it's irresponsible and unfaithful to do. What about the vaccine? The, the great vaccine. Do you get it? Do you not get it? Is it the mark of the beast? FYI, it's not. <laughs> settle, settle down. Do you get it or do you not? There are really strong opinions on this issue. Politics. A Christian must be Republican because Christians cannot vote for abortion advocacy. A Christian must be Democrat because a Christian must care about all people, not just the unborn. Must care for various sexual preferences, for minorities, for immigrants, and for the poor. Therefore, you cannot be faithful and be a Republican. I've heard both. What about masks? As I look at all of your beautiful masks, mask faces, faithful Christian will happily wear a mask to protect others' lives. Faithful Christian will refuse to wear a mask because the government has overreached and infringed upon our own personal freedoms. Heard both. And then some of us are just like, I don't care, they just itch. What about a counseling approach? Biblical counselors often say that psychology has no place in faithful counseling for the Christian because scripture is sufficient for life and godliness. Whereas integrated Christian counselors will say that biblical counselors are unfaithful because they do not take into account the way that God created the body and the mind. And it's a form of unfaithfulness. Certain use of words in our language. I won't give an example here because our children are with us. Celebration of holidays like Halloween. Just this week I heard someone who absolutely refuses to celebrate Halloween because there's like devils and ghosts and vampires and evil stuff. They thought it was unfaithful to celebrate it. What about whether churches went online or did not go online when the lockdown happened? It's a matter of faithfulness to many. We even do this with theological frameworks. 
right? We hold up theological frameworks and we go, this issue is a matter of faithfulness. And let's be clear, there are some issues that are. Right, to, borrow, Bob, to borrow the idea of triage when it comes to theology, we have primary issues, issues that we must not give on or else we lose our faith. We lose who God is. We lose who the, what the gospel is, subjects like the Trinity and like the gospel. If you believe wrongly in these areas, then you very well might not be a believer in Jesus. We have secondary issues, like the issues that are important for the local church, but that you can still walk in friendly Christian fellowship with one another in, even if you have differences of opinion. Things like baptism and communion, church membership and church leadership. And we have tertiary issues, right? They matter to us. They should not be enforced upon others. Rather, we should live with much grace in these areas with one another when we disagree. All the examples I've gone through today would fit in that kind of category. Church, here's the thing. The problem is that many of us make the main thing not the main thing. And we make minor things the main thing. Or in other words, many of us major on the minors and minor on the majors. We make alcohol or masks or education of our children or political alignment major things. We get heated about them. We get frustrated over them. We get in arguments about them. We cancel brothers and sisters over these issues. And at the same time, we minor on major issues. We compromise on the gospel of Jesus. We water down the Trinity. We make allowance for people to come to God by another means than Jesus, as long as they are sincere with their faith. And church, we let sin go unaddressed under the disguise of freedom. Right? We major on the minors while at the same time ignoring the majors, like sin in our lives. We won't drink wine, but we indulge in porn. We fight for political alignment, but we are apathetic when it comes to loving our wives. We argue that counseling should be done only from Scripture because Scripture is sufficient, while at the same time ignoring Scripture's command to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Allow me to keep stepping on some toes. We feel like it's okay for us to sleep with our boyfriend or our girlfriend because we don't feel guilty about it and God sees our love, but Scripture makes it clear that sex outside of the marriage between a man and a woman is immorality. We feel like it's okay to watch films that stir our lust because it's done in the form of art and it's a critical part of the story. And after all, I'm not indulging in any sexual activity. Scripture makes that makes clear, it makes it clear that it's not only hardcore porn or physical affairs that are sin, but it's lust of any form. We feel like it's okay to smoke marijuana because it's legal in some places, and we feel like it's, uh, we have no conviction about the amount of alcohol we drink to the point of drunkenness, and yet Scripture tells us to live in sobriety, to not be controlled by any substance but the Spirit. So drunkenness and getting high, even food addiction, our sins. Church, some of you are claiming to walk in freedom, but to be honest, you have a seared conscience and you're calling things freedom when they're outright sin. There must be confession and repentance of these. Christian liberty is not freedom to walk directly in the face of what Scripture has commanded us not to partake in. But 
but there are things that are non-essential. The scripture does not clearly define as sin, but that are a matter of conscience. And in this text, Paul focuses on what he believes about these issues, but he also focuses, and more of his focus is, is on how should the strong and the weak interact about these. He will give us his opinion in a moment, what he believes about Christian freedom. But the thrust of his text is not, well, this is, this is my opinion. The thrust of the text is, here's how people with differences of opinions on non-essentials actually should love and interact with each other. So, how are the strong supposed to treat the weak? Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome, accept, bring in the one who is weak. So if you walk in freedom, then accept, welcome, be friendly, embrace those who don't walk in freedom. And you don't embrace them for the sake of quarreling with them. Hey, why don't you come over to my house and hang out some so that I can convince you you're wrong, right? And then you make it an argument with them. Some of you are really good at arguing over non-essential issues. Maybe you're not so bold as to do so in person, but you're really good at it on social media. You're experts at it. Paul will go, accept, welcome them, but not to quarrel with them. Verse three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So if you live in freedom to eat meat, you live in freedom to drink wine, you live in freedom to partake in a certain freedom that someone else doesn't, it says don't, uh, don't despise them for not doing this. Don't despise them. What, what in the world? Why are you so uptight? It's so frustrating to be around you. I, I can't even be myself when I'm with you. But don't despise them for their convictions on that. Welcome them, accept them without quarreling. Verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. All right, so you accept them, you don't quarrel with them, you, you don't despise them, and you don't judge them. Right, you're literally being unfaithful to God, right, this type of judging. You're being unfaithful to God because you won't walk in freedom like me. You must believe the gospel. You must not really believe the gospel if you think you must keep that rule. You don't understand gospel freedom and you judge one another. He says, don't, don't judge one another and determine never to put a stumbling block in front of them. Right, verse 15 goes on and says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Right? There should be a responsibility on the stronger brother or sister who walks in freedom and Christian liberty to not be, make that freedom a stumbling block for another who has a stronger conscience on abstaining from that. So we don't force it on them to try to get them to join us. And we don't gather around them. We don't do it around them. I'm having you over for dinner, and I know that you believe it's unwise and unfaithful um, for a Christian to drink wine, then I'm not going to try to make you drink wine because you come to my dinner table. And I'm even going to have the conversation of, is, is, this, is there a problem if, if I drink? Would you prefer us not to drink? And if you would prefer that, then the wine doesn't come out. The fellowship at the table is more important than the drink in my glass. 
Paul is saying that the stronger brother and sister who walk in freedom should be so free that they're able to graciously not partake of that freedom for the sake of loving and caring for the weaker brother or sister. Paul is asking us to be loving in the exercise of our freedom. To be loving in the exercise of it. It bothers you. You have strong conviction about this. I don't have to do that around you. It's okay. How are the weak supposed to treat the strong? Verse three. How are the weak supposed to treat the strong? Verse three says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. If you, can find, if, you, if you find yourself as the weaker brother or sister, you have strong convictions that you cannot partake in something that is clearly, um, not, that is clearly um, not sin within Scripture, you must not cast judgment on those who do. So if your conviction is no wine and someone else has conviction they can drink wine, Scripture does not clearly prohibit wine for believers. You don't cast judgment on them. You're unfaithful to God because you're drinking that. You give grace and don't pass judgment there. Verse 13, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of the brother. Yes, this was applied to the stronger brother, not to partake in the freedoms around those who are weaker and risk causing them um, conflict within their conviction and their soul, but it also is applicable to, to the weaker brother. Right? It applies to the weaker brother by not causing the strong to stumble by demanding faithfulness in an area that the Bible itself does not demand faithfulness. Keeping guilt and shame upon a brother or a sister in an area the Bible does not call them to actually clearly walk in. And then to both the strong and the weak, Paul says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Paul has talked over and over again in chapters 12 through 14 about this, this idea of making peace with one another, of pursuing peace with each other at all possibilities. And here he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. One commentator said, the real test of maturity and the real measure of love for one another is how we express our convictions with those whom we do not, who do not share them. How do we express our convictions with those who do not share them? The strong church are to value fellowship more than they value their freedoms. And the weak are to value fellowship more than they demand their convictions. The stronger to value fellowship more than they value freedoms, and the weak are to value fellowship more than they demand their convictions. Why is this the approach that Paul takes? Why is this the direction he sends us? Five reasons. First, because God has welcomed them, the other brother or sister. Right, if you're the weaker one, God has welcomed the stronger. If you're the stronger one, God has welcomed the weaker. 14 verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and, not let, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. To reject the one whom Christ has welcomed is to say that Christ has poor judgment. It is placing your own opinion as wiser than God's himself. God has accepted them, you accept them. Secondly, 
Because God has welcomed you. Because God has welcomed you. We'll borrow from next week's passage, chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Christ has welcomed you. And all of your brokenness and all of your mess and all of your sin and your inability to pull yourself together, he's welcomed you. Therefore, welcome others. Third, because they are God's servants, not yours. Because they are God's servant, not yours. 14.4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That person in your community group is not your servant, and they do not answer to you. They answer to their master, Jesus. And whether they are right or they are wrong, acceptance, right, their acceptance before God, their acceptance by their master is not based on your judgment of them. It's based on his. And the text says, and he is able to make them stand, whether they're weaker or stronger. He is able to make them stand. He's a strong and gracious and capable master who's able to make them stand and won't let them fall away. In 14, 18, it says, whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the question is, is this person serving Christ in their weakness or in their strength? Are they serving Christ? And if so, they're acceptable before God. And we'll see in a moment they are serving Christ. Fourth, because God will judge us all. Chapter 14, verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue confess to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every last one of us in this room will stand before our master, God, and we'll give an account. Whether you choose to follow him in this life or you don't, we all stand before him and give an account. So just a pause and an aside for an unbeliever in this room who's never placed their faith in Jesus. There will be a day you stand before God and you give an account for why you did not place your faith in Jesus. If there is not faith in Jesus, there is no acceptance by God on that day. I plead with you to come trust in Jesus, the Son of God who died, was buried, and rose again on your behalf. Believer, you will give an account to God which means we have to take it so seriously how we indulge in or don't indulge in Christian freedoms. But we also have to take it seriously why we indulge or don't indulge. Out of what heart am I exercising my freedom? Out of what heart am I exercising restriction in this area? And so we treat each other with acceptance and not with judging because the other person is God's servant and they will give an account to God. And so will we. Verse number five, because both the one who enjoys freedom and the one who embraces strictness do so out of a thankful heart and a desire for God's glory and honor. Both the one who's strict and the one who's free do so out of a thankful heart and a desire for God's glory and honor. Look at chapter 14, verse six. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. 
while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Their actions may be different, but their intentions are the same. The one who indulges in freedom does so out of a faith that Jesus has made that thing free for them to enjoy, and they do so as an act of thankfulness to the Lord. If I drink a good glass of wine and I taste it and enjoy it, there's a, ah, thank you, God, for this gift. And yet people I deeply love who believe that you should never put wine to your tongue do not put wine to their tongue because they believe with their whole heart that is faithfulness. And so they too have a heart and a desire for God's glory and honor through their discipline in that area. So he says, neither one of you are trying to to ignore God. You're both trying to worship and enjoy him in an area he's given freedom. So let each other indulge in the area of their conscience in this particular place. In church, we can't miss what Paul says in verse 14. Remembering that the weak are making their choices because they want to see God. In verse 14, Paul actually lays out for us that he believes, um, or that he, at least himself, lives in freedom to partake in Christian liberty. The Apostle Paul lives in freedom to partake. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Whoa, that's confusing, Paul. In fact, in, in a culture, in a world right, we're in right now that's like um, very postmodern where everyone kind of creates their own truth and their own morality, this almost feels like Paul's teetering on the edge of just like falling off, his, off of faith. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, it's okay to eat meat even if it's offered to idols. It is okay to believe that all days are equal. It is okay to drink wine. It's also okay not to. It's okay to smoke a cigar, to vote Democrat or Republican, to homeschool or to public school. It's okay to mask up joyfully or to think that masks are a ridiculous overreach. It's okay. It's allowed. But if it goes against your conscience, don't indulge. Verse 14, he says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Verse 23, whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Verse 5, each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul's going to say, if you go to someone's house and they have alcohol and they offer you alcohol and you feel like you shouldn't, but there's pressure too, and you're like, oh, I got to do this to like make, make them like uh, accept me, and, and you go against your own conscience. He goes, now it's sin. You felt conviction not to, but now you're indulging. You've crossed the line. And so he says, each one must be sure in his own heart, which sounds a little bit iffy to us, does it not? All right, let's just all get on our, on, on our own. Let's think through this and let's come up with our own standard of morality and freedoms and then we'll just all come back and enforce those ourselves. But church, I believe that this text is a, is a corporate text. The whole thrust of it is how to walk in unity with each other. Which is why I believe that, that to gather together and to discuss these things actually is an issue that, that is helpful. Right, with brothers and sisters, not in quarreling, not in arguing, but to seek wisdom. 
Right? I, I remember that Paul is not saying, hey, let's get together on our own and let's decide what is sin and not sin in life when the Bible has already made that very clear. If the Bible says something sin and in your conscience you go, I don't think it is, you're wrong. But in the areas the Bible does not speak to, he goes, be convinced in your own heart. I believe that this being convinced in our own heart doesn't come just from sitting by ourselves and just deciding, but, but it must come through honest, careful, peaceful, patient, humble conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. What do your pastors believe about the freedom you're considering indulging in? What do, does your church community believe? Kids, what do your parents believe? Walking with brothers and sisters who are mature in faith to help you think through it. Further, I believe that being convinced in your own mind um, must include thorough study of Scripture and prayer. Why would we try to decide these things for ourselves without studying Scripture to see if it says anything to the issue we're considering? What does Scripture say? Lastly, if you're prayer, if you, uh, after you prayerfully study the Scriptures and walk in humble community seeking to understand in these things, then I would say act in conviction. Go forth and act in conviction. Don't go against your conscience. If you truly believe it's wrong for a Christian to drink wine, don't drink. If you truly believe homeschooling is faithfulness, then homeschool. If you truly believe public school is faithfulness, public school. Don't walk in shame and judgment if you choose something that someone else disagrees with. If you've done the diligence to work and to pray and to study scriptures and you have conviction in your heart around that issue. And church, whether you are the strong or the weak, we seek peace and mutual upbuilding. Whether you're the strong or the weak, we seek peace and mutual upbuilding. Your fellowship is more important than your freedom. Your fellowship is more important than convincing others of your convictions. We are free to eat and not to eat because Jesus has died and risen again to set us free from sin and death. The text says that he died for the living and the dead. He died for the freedom flag waver and the strict freedom limiter. So walk in your conviction. Give grace and love to others and do it all for the honor and the glory of God with thankfulness. We will never agree on all issues that are non-essential, but we can agree to walk with each other in love and grace for mutual upbuilding and peace. Let's pray. God, would you reveal to me the places where I am the weak person and where I need to show grace to those who walk in more freedom than I'm comfortable with? Help me to see my brother and sister as those who are pursuing the honor of God with thanksgiving through their freedom. God, would you reveal to me the places where I'm the strong person, where I need to show love and grace and acceptance to those whose convictions appear to be legalistic to me? Would you help me to see my brother and sister as those who are pursuing the honor of God with thanksgiving through their tighter convictions? God, would you teach me to loosen my tight conscience in areas that you have truly given liberty? God, would you teach me to walk in such liberty that I'm free to abstain from my freedoms out of love for my brother or my sister if it would be a stumbling block for them? And Jesus, would you help us to be a people who out of thankfulness for your life, your death, and your resurrection, 
which have purchased our freedom, would you help us to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding so that our unity in these things may honor you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.